Hello and welcome to the Indian Ocean World podcast. My name is Philip Gooding. For this podcast, I'm thrilled to be joined by Professor Krishnendu Ray. Professor Ray is a professor of food studies at New York University Steinhardt. He is the author of The Migrant's Table, Meals and Memories in Bengali American Households, which was published with Temple University Press in 2004. He is also the author of The Ethnic Restaurateur, which was published with Bloomsbury in 2016. In addition to that, he is the author of several edited volumes and journal articles. In this podcast, we are discussing his co-edited special issue, which is entitled Culinary Cultures on the Move, which was published last year in Verge Studies in Global Asia's. Professor Ray is additionally the co-author of two pieces in the issue, which are respectively entitled Cooking Cultures, Global Asia's On the Move and In the Making, and Food in the Indian Ocean World, Mobility, Materiality and Cultural Exchange. Professor Ray, thank you so much for agreeing to this podcast interview. First of all, could you just tell us about the origins of this special issue and the twin collaborations that underpin it? That is, the collaborations with your co-editors and with your co-authors. How did this project and the articles within it come to be? And what were the questions or aims going in, both individually and in collaboration? Okay, thanks a lot, Philip. Well, when did it start? So it's a bit of a long haul, like any, um, your audience would know, like any special issue of a journal. I think it started sometime around November 2020 with an email uh, from uh, Tina Chen, uh, one of the big figures in global Asia, and uh, which brings together Asian American studies and Asian studies. In some ways, the attempt there is to bridge that. And then Zhu Wonri, who comes out of uh, Asian studies and comparative literature. Uh, so they send me out an email saying, hey, we would love to do a workshop and a special issue of this uh, Verge journal a couple of years down the road. Uh, we have never done an issue on food. Would you be interested? Mm, and so that was the starting point. Remember, this is November 2020. So I'm in Manhattan and we have just gone through this, uh, like what, April was the first peak of the COVID uh, 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 pandemic and there was panic all around me and they had just subsided through the end of the summer. We, we were all unsure uh, where this was going to lead. Uh, but so that was the invitation that eventually led to the first remote summer workshop in the summer of 2021. So we invited, a, uh, we sent out the announcements uh, once we had an agreed upon definition of what this was going to be which was, as you said, Philip, um, culinary cultures on the move. Uh, and it was supposed to bring together this work, uh, in, which is Global Asia, which is Asian American studies and Asian studies. And then, so we had the workshop summer 2021. It took us two more years to uh, finish the process. And the journal special issue eventually came out in the fall of 2023, which is last year. So it almost like a three-year process. That was the first part of the collaboration. The other part of the question was uh, the specific collaboration in the chapter on the Indian Ocean world, which is featured in this special issue uh, under a special section called Field Trips, uh, which is a way to bring together disciplinary knowledge, 
who are largely transdisciplinary, extradisciplinary audience. And in this case, I'm a sociologist by training, and I had mostly done my work, uh, as you read out, Philip, uh, on um, Asian American studies, American immigrant entrepreneurs, American um, uh, immigrants, and uh, their food cultures, their food businesses. Uh, we have pretty good record from about 1850 onwards on occupation and birthplace. We know that foreign-born dominate the food businesses uh, in American cities and, in fact, many global cities. So I was familiar with that work. I knew that work. Uh, but I was I had always been enticed by the rich literature of the Indian Ocean world. Uh, so for me, this was kind of an invitation to help me think through beyond the limits of the nation state. In this case, not only North America, United States, but also India, because I had mostly worked with Indian immigrants to think about the Indian Ocean world. But I didn't have enough um, kind of critical perspective without the help of a historian, because my training is in sociology. So that's how Kathleen Burke, uh, who had submitted her application to attend this workshop in the summer of 2021, uh, I invited her to help me think and write this piece on the Indian Ocean world. And then uh, Stephanie Jolly, uh, who is an independent scholar who in fact mostly writes in new media on travel and food. Uh, she also is a very good editor. She had edited my work before. Uh, my work in English needs substantial editing work. And given her interest in, she's kind of an expert on the classics of the travel literature, the Marco Polos, the, you know, uh, Thomas Perez, uh, the, in some ways, that rich literature that this article eventually depends on. So she played this double role of uh, an English editor, but also on the literature, the travel literature around the Indian Ocean world, like Ibn Battuta, etc. So it slowly came together, I would say almost over the length of a year and a half, that these two collaborative teams, one on with Tina Chen, and Julian Rhee, and the other with Kathleen Burke and Stephanie Jolly. These are wonderful collaborations and wonderful um, in the interdisciplinarity as well. That really comes through as you read through um, the volume. One of the things that you um, write in uh, in the in the volume is that food studies has largely overlooked the Indian Ocean world until recently, uh, instead focusing on American and European foodways. And you've done a lot to, I suppose, counteract that throughout your career. But I want to know, could you reflect on why that has been the case, especially when we think about the fact so many of the food commodities, so many food commodities from the Indian Ocean world um, are crucial to um, European and American cuisine. You can think here about coffee, which you mentioned in depth in one of the pieces, but also when you think about sugar, tea, uh, rice, and spices here too. No, and a beautiful uh, question. And I think that the kind of the genealogy of food studies itself 
is out of the consumption literature and out of the consumption literature in the affluent world, yeah, contemporary affluent world. So there's a sense in which food studies has this kind of um, historical presentism, what looks like affluent societies of the 19th and the 20th centuries. Okay, so a lot of the literature, immense amount of beautiful writing and writing on consumption and consumer studies, but mostly European and North American because of that genealogy. And for me, that was one of the attractions of the Indian Ocean world uh, and, and the literature that's emerging out of your institute, uh, the rich literature that embeds it in a, a history of the long durée, an environmental history, uh, and then a history of, for instance, uh, incense uh, and frankincense around the Indian Ocean world on which you can see the layer building with uh, spices, pepper and cinnamon, okay? And then you get layered with sugar and tea and coffee. So I think one of the reasons is the, the basis of it uh, in, in consumption studies. And that's changing. And it's changing because of the work of a lot of people. And one of the sources, of course, has been the rich literature on the history of spices. And uh, yet, even now, we know a lot less about it, conditions of production, distribution, consumption around the Indian Ocean world than we know, for instance, about early modern uh, to medieval Europe consumption levels and the tra big transition. Like when, for instance, European cuisine, so to say, uh, moves away from the spices and uh, into, in some ways, butter, cream, herb-based, the classic exemplar of that, say, is French haute cuisine. And in, in kind of, in astonishing cases, what I have been surprised about is how, um, how people presume that is how Europeans always ate, that is how European elites always ate, they never ate spices, you know? And it's startling um, uh, to, to see, in fact, the transformations in European taste, say around circa, from around 1600 to 1800, the big transformation in taste, where in fact, European food has less, lot less spices. So I think what the Indian Ocean world allowed us to do is kind of not only connect the strength of food studies to the study of spices, uh, sugar, tea, and coffee, but also denaturalize this presumption that people in the tropics use spices, people in the temperate zone do not use spices. That seems to be a peculiar common sense. Uh, and so when people talk about, say, one last example, when people talk about the use of spices in Europe, I've seen very good historians who are not food historians make claims like spices were used because the quality of meat was poor. It was to cover the taste of rancid meat that people used all the cinnamon and cardamom. That is an absurd claim. And one of my historian friends, she said, it's like pouring what? Would you pour cocaine over rotting meat? Will that make rotting meat any better? Because cinnamon and cardamom and mace are very expensive. Uh, and to get this spices and then use it to cover the taste of rotting meat, which of course is a very Eurocentric assumption, 
about taste. That of course you want meat without all these spices, unless the meat is going bad. So anyway, so this was a kind of a way to unthink the a the presentism of contemporary tastes uh, and give it kind of a long historical perspective. And that uh, explained that Europe in fact had moved away from use of spices to lot less spices, which in fact is linked to a kind of a new understanding self-recognition of Europe and European elites uh, as not of the colonized world, as not of the Orient, but as the Occident. And that is going to be separate and different with very different taste, and which you see highlighted, say in 18th century uh, French haute cuisine, where you no longer have spices. You have herbs, very clearly differentiated, which are very local and European, and they're not cinnamon, they're not mace, you know, then they're not nutmeg. Uh, it's much more herbaceous, but also then cream-based sauces, a lot of butter, butter if you go up north, and then olive oil uh, if you stay around the Mediterranean. So this was a way to complicate what had become naturalized, even amongst historians who were not historians of food, uh, to assume what this history of things like spices is kind of one example of it. And then of course, sugar is a different set of relationship. Maybe I'll end with that. Uh, for instance, we are still waiting for a good book on sugar um, uh, in South Asia that it pays attention to petty commodity production rather than say the Sydney Mintz one, which is a fantastic work, which is on enslavement, which is on European working class consumption. Uh, we still do not have a good Sydney Mintz-like book on sugar in South Asia that pays attention to petty commodity production, to its distribution, to its consumption. Um, and so un that field is unevenly developed in some domains, better developed uh, than in others, and a better understanding of time and historical change in tastes. So I think you've alluded to the to an answer to the, the next question I'm going to ask a little bit in that previous question, but I think it's an important one that you could uh, give a sense to our listeners, um, who I think a minority will be actually um, from the discipline of food studies. Um, now, one of the contributions of global Asian studies uh, and international world studies is to kind of break down um, Eurocentric spatial silos and to try and break down um, Eurocentric modes of knowledge production. Could you give a sense for our listeners how food studies may do that in distinct ways? You've hinted at kind of ways that it might be able to do that in the future with um, sugar production as a petty commodity there. From a disciplinary standpoint, how can food studies challenge Euro Eurocentric modes of knowledge production? So I would say in some ways, as with my previous answers, there's a sense of really thinking through the space-time of our analysis much more self-consciously. Okay, um, so I think one of the one of the kind of potential uh, assets of thinking about food in food studies is being aware of mostly what we call food studies uh, has been done in say social history. European social history, very much, say, Brodel, 
Burdellian think about kind of the three volume history of capitalism. And the first volume is structures of everyday life, where one chapter is on food, one on house, housing, shelter, one on clothing. Okay? Very Burdellian uh, in that sense. Uh, kind of bring in uh, some of the perspective uh, uh, there and also kind of think through uh, what would become kind of uh, relatively recent nationalisms, you know, within national frame. There's a lot of discussion about, say, national cuisines, like Indian food, like what, what is Indian cuisine? And, uh, uh, and the way, in some ways, if food studies is sensitive to uh, a, uh, the example of, uh, say, social history. The two other sources for food studies is sociology, especially sociology of consumption after after Bourdieu. Uh, so, say, Bourdieu's distinction, yeah? Pierre Bourdieu's distinction, which gets translated, what, 1984, I think, is the translation, and then in some ways really disseminates uh, through uh, kind of this discussion of uh, uh, consumption, especially in the developed world. And basically his question is, how does domination work in spite of democracy? And one of his argument is works through culture, again, works through cultural capital. Uh, fantastic, but it tends to be the last 20 years, the last 40 years, the last 60 years. And the third source is anthropology, okay? And anthropology has been the, has paid attention to food over the longest duration. Again, okay? part of it was anthropology was supposed to be the study of food of non-literate people, which has always been the strength of anthropology. People in some ways who do not usually have a written record. So, uh, so you have to observe, and a lot of it is kind of things like oral history and things like ethnographic work. What food studies as an interdisciplinary space that has been built on top of Bordellian social history, anthropological ethnography of in some ways within quotation marks, people without history, so to say, uh, with at least historical documentation uh, and, and the sociology uh, of consumption uh, uh, together gives, not always necessarily, but allows scholars working in this domain to pick and choose their temporal frame and their spatial frame, okay? And for instance, to understand spices, okay? If you understand, to understand the use of spices and the emergence of haute cuisine in Europe, you could stop at say around 1800, okay? But to really see the transition, to not naturalize it, you have to probably go 300 years deeper into it and saying, why did Europeans consume so much uh, so many spices in such vast amounts and then quickly gave it up, okay? Which of course then also allows us, as Sidney Mintz used to say, which is this kind of very interesting question. He said, people are very conservative about what they choose to eat until they change their mind. So what is this until they change their mind? And so that, of course, has to be attuned to different kinds of, I think, spatialization and temporalization of the analysis. What is the temporal unit that is relevant to understanding, say, the consumption of spice or the consumption of sugar compared to, say, the consumption of coffee? Let me end with this example of coffee, in fact, which we develop in this, in this article. 
coffee is a, is, a, is a terrific example, a produce that comes out of uh, East Africa, uh, Ethiopia, present-day Eritrea, and then Yemen. Okay, and most of us would know, most of your audience would know that Yemen in some ways becomes an important site of at least global trade and coffee spreads westward through the Arabian Peninsula, uh, through in fact, mostly Turkish sources uh, and spreads like wildfire uh, in, in Europe. Okay, so you, we have the rich literature on coffee and coffee houses and the birth of the bourgeois public sphere. We have Habermas, we have Chivalbush, uh, you know, we have Benedict Anderson's nationalism. They're all referencing different ways of coffee, coffee houses and its transformation. So that story is a fantastic story. And, and it's a beautifully done story about taking something, a stimulant, and, and transforming a public culture in Europe. But one of the questions that falls in the shadow of that uh, history is there's almost very little written about what happens to coffee as it goes east from Yemen, okay? So today, uh, you, me, and everyone else assumes that the smartest and the best way to drink coffee is the way the Italians drink, which itself is a very interesting history, uh, right? At a counter, standing there and taking a quick swig and then kind of running off to do very modern urban stuff uh, in, in the world today. Uh, and, and the best coffee, of course, is Italian coffee, et cetera, et cetera. Which of course is kind of, it's A, uh, A in some ways correct, beautiful, but also so ethnocentric as to so much so that even an American corporation like Starbucks has these fake Italian names to its coffee and coffee sizes, right? Venti, et cetera, et cetera. So the question for, for us was, so what exactly happens to coffee when it goes east from Yemen, okay? And so one of the things we run into in the material uh, is this uh, a taste for kisser. Uh, and which is almost like uh, 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 toasted coffee shells, uh, and then a tea is brewed out of it. And then you can have it with cardamom or you can have it with cinnamon, almost like a pot of tea. Uh, and quite, totally coincidentally, as I was trying to think through this and write this as to what happens to coffee, A, in this Ethiopian world, in this Yemeni world, but also in this Indian Ocean world, where it, where it gets in some ways uh, turned into a tea, very different from the way coffee is, uh, say, consumed uh, 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 as an kind of a, as an ideal type of Italian consumption, is uh, 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 very little literature. I think uh, Venkata Chalapati has, an has a, one article where he talks about before there was coffee which is about coffee consumption in peninsular India. Okay, in India, because coffee spreads in the Indian Ocean world in peninsular India, then in fact spreads from peninsular India to Northern India, okay? Very different itinerary of coffee. And in fact, coffee and its public culture in, 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 in South Asia, it gets associated with a certain kind of socialist politics and communist politics from peninsular India. Uh, into north of India. So this is a way of illustrating 
how something like coffee, something that looks quite well studied, and if you just put it in the Indian Ocean world, it can totally disrupt our easy assumption of A, what is good coffee? B, how should one drink it? Uh, uh, what is the ideal way to drink it? And C, what is its relationship to social structure, politics, and urban publics that in fact in the Indian Ocean world plays a very different role, though a connected role in some ways, compared to what happens when coffee moves west from Ethiopia, Eritrea, Yemen into Europe. So this is kind of one illustrative example. Well, I want to kind of push you on other aspects of food studies as well. Possibly as a field of uh, multi-sensory inquiry, the smell of pan, the, the color of kisser, and this kind of might seem like a difference between food studies and these other disciplines that you've mentioned too. Um, do you see methodological crossovers here as well, um, like with multi-sensory uh, disciplines? Uh, I didn't think about it until uh, you raised the question. And, and that that's kind of an excellent point. And of course, then I realized, well, we have written about a bit about it in the pawn section. And pawn... Uh, uh, to give a sense to your audience is uh, is a kind of a leaf uh, which is sometimes called beetle leaf, uh, which usually wraps uh, uh, areca nut, uh, often uh, eaten with an alkali mm, base, kathechu uh, uh, and lime, uh, and then uh, some people uh, chew it. It's a masticate. Uh, like chewing gum, and uh, sometimes chewed with tobacco, and um, sometimes without it. My aunt, for instance, um, uh, she chewed it with tobacco uh, at the age of 10 in a small town, uh, Peninsular India. Uh, the, the beautiful thing about pawn, and this is, uh, I think, this multisensory richness of something like that, uh, is underlined by where almost what it tastes like is less important than what it smells like. And the smell it exudes because people chew pan and often it is with spices, it could have with fennel and all kinds of spices, nutmeg, mace, etc. So there's a sense of almost, uh, I think it is uh, uh, McHugh who writes... Uh, I think the book is called Sandalwood. Let me, I'm, I'm cheating here. Sandalwood and Carrion. Uh, I'm looking at my stack of books. He uh, he talks about this, this question of why smell nice? So why is it important that someone's mouth is aromatic? Okay. We usually, I mean, in some ways in a post-American hegemonic world, Chewing gum became ubiquitous for a very similar reason, but the association usually was with hygiene, uh, cleanliness, 
our mouths smell well, that means we are in some ways uh, kind of good citizens, modern citizens of the modern world. Uh, uh, because outdated citizens of outdated worlds uh, do not use deodorants, they smell and their mouth smells. So that's kind of this American ethnocentric idea of the modern civilized uh, uh, subject. In South Asia and all, in fact, all around the uh, uh, the Indian Ocean world, in the northern Indian Ocean world, uh, wherever even Batuta goes, everywhere he's offered pan. Okay, everywhere he's offered betel leaf, arecanut, and so it is. It is this aromatics, but this is aromatics is a way of kind of engaging with each other and creating these bonds of loyalty. Okay, so for instance. And a social superior might, in fact, wrap pan with arecanut, uh, spices, etc., and wrap it and put it in your mouth. And that is a bond of loyalty. Okay, so that's supposed to strengthen this bond bond of loyalty. It's a bit like way salt is used uh, around parts of uh, the Indian Ocean world, which is like we have a saying, namak haram, that is, he ate my salt and then he betrayed me. Okay? That is the height of betrayal. If you eat someone's salt, you're supposed to be loyal. And in fact, you see it in Ibn Battuta's uh, writing, you see it all around even now. Uh, in a in a in a film called, if your audience uh, love uh, some of the good Bollywood films like Makbul, in Makbul, one of the characters who is this kind of the dawn character, okay, he tries to stuff pan into the mouth of his sidekick, okay, and the sidekick recoils back. He says, "No, I don't eat pan," okay. So this dawn says. Uh, 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 if if you eat this, your tongue will will maintain its limits. Okay, so and his argument here is, you will stay loyal to me if you take this pawn from me. If you don't, there's uh, a source. You could be a source of betrayal, and eventually, in fact, he betrays him. Okay, so this almost like an aroma of loyalty, the relationship between aroma and not as a modern American hygienic subject, but as in fact a loyal subject, okay, is extensive around the Indian Ocean world uh, as early as we can see the evidence, in this case, at least from 1300 uh, CE to up to now, even now, in small towns, in big cities, all around the Indian Ocean world, especially in peninsular India. There's a rich culture of hosting people and in hosting people offering pawn and in offering pawn creating bonds of loyalty. So there is a kind of a twofold dimension to this pawn. One is it's an odor of loyalty. It's an odor of sanctity. Okay, and it is multi-sensory in this rich way where its substantive contribution is in fact aromatic. And being aromatic, smelling nice is not something silly and superficial. 
So in some ways goes against depth ontology. The idea we have that the real me, no matter how smelly, is, is the one you are after, which is the Western romanticism, okay? Idea about authenticity, and which is also bridges to soul, Christian notions of soul, for instance. What's in your soul is more important than the aroma of what's in your mouth. This is the inverse of that. Uh, your, your social presence, uh, is linked to the aromatics, okay? And aromatics not only in your mouth, but aromatics of incense. Uh, in fact, a lot of the, what we call spices were basically uh, aromatics. They were used with oil to massage oil, okay? For, for basically beautiful smelling, loyal subjects, okay? One way of constructing a kind of a subject. So what food studies allows us to think, if we can think in these kind of ways uh, that are flexible, flexible across disciplines, flexible across temporalities, flexible across spatialities, okay? That it can contribute to a reconception of questions of politics, power, loyalty, and subjectivity, subject formation. Who is a good subject, okay? In, in whose eyes? So in some ways, Pan, I would say, is a terrific example of thinking through these kind of a multi-sensory registers of what matters socially. One of the major contributions of this special issue is, as far as I'm aware, this is the first special issue or collaborative volume that is dedicated to specifically the circulation of food cultures in the Indian Ocean world. But of course, it's published in a journal focusing on global Asia's and therefore it stays largely to the north of the equator. Um, yeah. I suppose maybe this is what kind of a hypothesis, kind of asking you to project a little bit and to maybe um, speculate even. Is there more to be done here? What um, what can be done here? What do you think happens if there is a food studies of the Indian Ocean world that also incorporates places like Southeastern Africa, the Mascarenes, Western Australia and broader Austronesia? How do you think food, food studies might profitably engage with these regions, particularly if you're centering kind of the Indian Ocean world framework here too? Oh, good question. I don't have an answer other than saying this that um, this took me almost three and a half years of intensive reading. Uh, 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 the material, because there's such a rich material to be able to synthesize. But even now stepping back from it to prepare for this interview, as I was reading it, I was catching aspects that where it's too crumpled, too dense. Uh, it's kind of hasn't been smoothed out. It almost needs one more round of edits on it to loosen it up. It's almost like uh, we have been burdened by so much reading uh, that we couldn't kind of, we couldn't relax our shoulders a bit. So uh, this by way of saying, yes, I would love to read more of that literature, especially the Southern Indian Ocean, okay? And, and how that might transform uh, my thinking, uh, for instance, a much stronger presence of indigenous populations of Australia, 
their connections to Southeast Asia. Okay, so I, I I see in some of it, and you will see in the Pan section, we are making an argument that Pan has been understudied because it flows against the gradient of power. It moves largely from a nomadic population of Southeast Asia, island nations, mainland, and moves to peninsular India and from peninsular India to northern India. For instance, the Indian great Indian scholar Katia Chaya points out how Pan, in fact, is southern Indian, and it has very late references in, in, in northern India. A better, more attention to Southeast Asia, more attention to Australia and the indigenous populations would allow um, a deeper appreciation, which is now everywhere in good studies, historical studies, where we had historically marginalized nomadic people, people who moved as if they were marginal to this whole question of city, civilization, culture, etc. Okay, that is being redone, rewritten. And this is part of that rewriting. So I think it will strengthen uh, if I can spend a few more years reading uh, and also a lot of the material, and this is the second part challenge I'm looking forward to uh, embracing, is not probably going to be from archival material. It's probably going to be, you know, uh, archaeobotanical, shipwrecks, you know, and so of course, uh, Remember, I'm 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 walking out on a on a ledge here as a sociologist. Uh, uh, so as a historical sociologist, trying to synthesize and gather the material, and work, I will have to find partners who are uh, uh, experts in a domain. So that and that's kind of always one of the challenges when you do interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary work. There's always a challenge that you will be silly and superficial uh, rather than deep uh, uh, that comes with disciplinary knowledge, that comes with area studies. So I don't want to too easily dismiss that, but looking south from where this piece looks would, I think, strengthen that, uh, uh, that argument about practices, material practices that go longer, deeper, like we have seen with shipbuilding, okay? How that has re kind of reconfigured our thinking around the Indian Ocean world. What we used to think as underdeveloped societies tend to have very developed technologies in some dimensions of it. Only if we were looking at the right way uh, with the right set of eyes and the right set of evidence. So I think it that what you suggest has the potential of really reorienting Indian Ocean studies, especially food studies, from the heavy territorial nationalist bases like India, for instance, you know, uh, like even uh, 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 the nations of the Swahili coast. Okay, and if we can reach out of those regions, which will probably enable give us a richer history of material culture, a very different duration, a new set of sources, and a new way of thinking about connected histories, basically. Wonderful. Well, in that case, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to conclude with a very leading question, considering what you've just said. And that is, what are you working on now? Is this, is, 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 you, is this your main project? You, you're thinking through these questions now. Is this a project that you're now developing? 
Um, or are there other things that we can look forward to um, seeing from you as well in the in the relative near future? Uh, and like a twofold, right? Uh, uh, um, as most of your audience would know, uh, when you, when you contingently finish a project, meaning that you wrote a piece, you realize as soon as, uh, like you, me, everyone else, as soon as you finish it, you realize what the gaps, the problems of the piece are pieces are right and so where do you have to dig in and kind of your last question forced me to think about some of the gaps and the problems of the piece that i need uh, need to uh, dig into a related but also an unrelated so i don't know um in my case and i think in everyone's case there's a sense in which you are finishing a project second you're in the middle of another project third you're imagining a project yeah, so there's this kind of this dynamic relationship, and I find relief in slightly shifting um, uh, the registers uh, because I get tired and exhausted and bored, and I have to come back uh, to certain things. The most exciting part of the project is when you don't know anything about it; that everything is new and exciting. And when you have read into it about two years, then you say, "Huh, now what is left to say about this thing?" Okay, so and then you have to go past that threshold. To the, in my case, it was three and a half years of reading. So what, what, what I have gestured towards is your answer to your previous question. But a related, and in some ways, I would say maybe even unrelated point, what I'm really interested in is provisioning, feeding people. Again, uh, uh, coming from food studies, which tends to be Euro-American centered, there's this presumption that people feed themselves by going to the supermarket. And they often use cars or mass transit systems. But if you really look at the world, there are maybe 2 billion people who go to supermarkets. Rest of the world has never seen a supermarket. Right? Supermarkets are important in North America. Supermarkets are important in Europe, became important. Supermarkets are important in Latin America. And they're almost 50-50 now in Latin America. But supermarkets, I'd never seen a supermarket until I came to the United States. You know, uh, uh, I grew up in India. Okay, You go to East Africa. Okay? I've now traveled in East Africa. And where is a supermarket? If there is a supermarket, uh, maybe 0.001% of the elite shop in supermarkets. Okay, These massive supermarkets where most of the provisioning is happening is in fact wholesale markets local markets urban markets and street vendors okay so there's a rich literature on street vending etc but almost all of it assumes precarity informality as the defining feature what i really want to think about is this so what is this other system that we assign this category of informality, precarity, marginality, that's something that is supposed to be superseded by development. And, and state managers do that. China is right now trying to do that. Okay, It's going to get rid of all the street vending uh, and, in fact, have corporate street vendors with logo and basically move everyone into supermarkets, either by cars or bikes or motorcycles or, uh, or, 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 or of course, uh, mass transit systems. At least half the world's population, especially around the Indian Ocean world, okay? Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, Southeast Asia. Okay, where basically people and households 
a provision with the help of wholesale markets, local markets, street vendors, okay? For me, the challenge is, can I develop a theoretical argument about what this thing is uh, uh, without endlessly referencing it as precarious, informal, marginal, unsustainable? Unsustainable for who? Unsustainable for capital, not unsustainable for livelihoods. This supports, these systems support so many livelihoods, okay? So anyway, the attempt is to think about provisioning, urban provisioning, using the trans-Indian Ocean world experience to again pose this challenge. How are people fed in cities? What is the best way of feeding them? Now that we have learned how disastrous cars are after doing about a hundred years of it now and, and building a system on trucks and cars and motorcycles, which is basically the modern system of supermarket provisioning that less than half of the world uses. So as you can see, there's some relationship between, there's also a difference how to think about provisioning urban centers, in different parts of the world that are not fed by supermarkets. So that's my next project. And luckily I have a couple of doctoral students uh, who, who are always usually the best informed, you know, and uh, rich in the literature. And so we are, we, we have a provisioning subgroup now. We have done one from China, one from Mexico, uh, one from uh, United States and hope to develop some of these arguments over the next few years. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Professor Ray, for um, discussing your research with us, um, not just the special issue, but also what you're moving forward with, uh, both stemming from the special issue uh, and elsewhere with this provisioning project. Um, it's been really inspiring uh, to listen to you. It's been a very passionate um, and informative discussion of the potential power of food studies for um, challenging spatial frames and uh, challenging uh, Eurocentric knowledge production. And uh, I really enjoyed hearing about it. I also wanna thank um, Sam Gleave Riemann uh, for organizing and producing the podcast. And I wanna thank that you, the listener, for streaming or downloading. Uh, once again, my name is Philip Gooding, and this has been the Indian Ocean World Podcast. We would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. The Indian Ocean World podcast is produced under the Shirk-funded partnership Appraising Risk Past and Present. The podcast runs in conjunction with the annual speaker series at the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, Montreal. 